0: The cour Bonjour um, <laughs> veuillez vous asseoir Please be seated Ah
1: okay. uh, dans la cour uh, Nico
0: in the case of Nicolas Landry v His Majesty the King, for the appellant Nicolas Landry, Ariane gagnon Roque, and Maud Cloutier, for the respondent His Majesty the King, Patrick Cardinal and Nicolas Abran. Please be advised that there's a publication ban in place in this case issued by the Court of Quebec. Ms Gagnon-Rock. Madame les juges? Justices? I will begin by inviting you to briefly leave the world of the law and transport yourselves to the world of sales and I will take on the role of a salesperson so let's say that I'm selling cars and this morning I absolutely want to sell you a red car and I want to sell you a red car so very much that I've decided to tell a lie to convince you to buy this red car and to convince you I will tell you a lie that a specialized magazine has said that this specific car is the best car, that there is the most, the safest, the most durable, etc. Now, if I tell this lie to each of you, it will not have the same effect on each of you. Justice Obonsowin, while I'm telling you this lie, you're thinking of something else, but I don't mind. You're thinking about a fraud case that you've been uh, working on and as a consequence you don't even really consider buying the car. Justice Kuti, you politely listen to me, inaudible, I don't doubt it. You listen politely but you have no intention of buying the car. You're not even tempted. Justice Kerketsanis, you are a subscriber of the Specialized Magazine. That I'm mentioning. And you're not fooled. You know perfectly well that I'm telling you a lie, and consequently, you have no intention of buying the car. Justice Kazirer, you have seen this beautiful red car, and as soon as you set eyes on it, your heart went out and you were charmed by its beautiful color. So whether it's the best car, the most durable car, the most reliable or or uh, most technically interesting car, you don't really care about that. You're interested in its beautiful color. Justice Morrow, you buy the car because it uh, was a uh, assessed as being one of the best cars. So you rely on the lie that I told you. Are you all the victims of fraud? According to the majority of the Court of Appeal, the answer is yes, because my misrepresentations endanger your assets because my misrepresentation could influence you. That is uh, what Justice Cournoyer says. Question. Attempted fraud if we're not the victims of fraud in your example. answer Yes, absolutely. That's what I indicate in my conclusion. The question before us today is whether there was deprivation. So harm or risk of harm. If you conclude that there was not deprivation, then you can conclude that there was an attempted fraud. Because there's a dishonest act according to the conclusions of fact of the trial judge. Question. So you're renouncing your main conclusion in paragraph 101 where you are asking for an acquittal? Answer. Yes, that is correct. The decision that I believe you should render is to substitute the uh, verdict for a verdict of attempted fraud. Question. What do you say to the Crown's argument that Justice Cottenham should have dismissed the appeal and substitute attempted fraud? Answer. I think that is uh, correct. With all due respect to Justice Cottenham, To the extent that she substitutes a verdict, the correct uh, decision would be attempted fraud. Question. Okay. And if we do take uh, that path, if we do say that Justice Cottenham was justified in substituting the verdict for attempted fraud, then should we dismiss the appeal or what do you suggest? Answer. In my opinion, you should dismiss the appeal and substitute the verdict for attempted fraud and send this back to the courts. Question, unless we determine that Justice Cottenham's uh, suggested conclusion is appropriate? Answer, yes, that's what I say in my conclusion. But. Of course, the question of imprisonment should be debated because at the time it wasn't a, an option. Question, can we take that route? Answer, yes. Question, so if, so first of all, you set aside your conclusions in 101, and you would like us to confirm Justice Cottenham's conclusions In other words, substitute a verdict of attempted fraud, and to do so, this court would have to dismiss the appeal in order to substitute a verdict of attempted fraud, do exactly what you believe Justice Cottenham should have done. Is that correct? Answer, yes. Question inaudible. Answer. What I'm asking for is that you follow what Justice Cotnam suggested, but if you choose not to do so, I think you should send this back to the court, the trial court, because the prison term for attempted fraud is not the same as for fraud itself. The gravity of the crime is different. Thank you. So, to continue. If you don't intervene in the Court of Appeal decision, then all of the misrepresentations will constitute Fraud in the future because there will always be a theoretical possibility that there will be deprivation. It's what the judge called a period of vulnerability. Whenever a lie is told, the person who hears the lie is vulnerable. Question You never talked about the causation in your example about the sale of the car answer Well, I did mention it. In your case, uh, Justice Kazir, if you chose to purchase the red car because of its color and not because of the misrepresentation on my part, then in your case, the lie would not have any effect. You would have decided to purchase the car for another reason. And it's an interesting question because, in fact, Justice Cournoyer, in my humble opinion, made an error when he interpreted Raspberry and said, question, an error at law? Answer, yes, an error at law. He mentions uh, the absence of influence, but in the case of a lie, the situation is very different. In uh, that precedent, He said it's not necessary to establish that the person relied on the deceit or the fraud the fraud. But when there is false pretense, the situation is very different. And Justice Cournoyer quotes paragraph twenty four. And this is in my condensed book at tab two. Paragraph twenty four. It says, it follows that when the act that is considered to be fraud is not the same as deceit. In that case, the demonstration of causation between the dishonest behavior and deprivation does not necessarily depend on the evidence that the victim depended on the fraudulent act. In other words, the deceit, or rather the fraud, fraudulent means does not have to cause the victim to act in a particular way. So, if there is a lie that is told, a misrepresentation that does not lead to deprivation, question Let's look at Risebury, but let's change the facts a little bit. Imagine that both of us are racing horses. You have a horse, I have a horse, and yours is the favorite. Everybody agrees on that. My horse isn't particularly fast, and by deceit, I inject something into your horse's neck to slow your horse down. But during the race, your horse is so fast that your horse wins anyway. Is that a case of fraud? Because there was no deprivation. Your horse still won. But the risk did exist as soon as I committed that act. Answer, but would it be deceit to inject the drug or would it be a different fraudulent means question let's accept for the sake of argument that the dishonest act took place when i injected the substance into your horse's neck it was a dishonest act and we're debating the second element of the actus reus the deprivation or the risk of deprivation at the moment when the dishonest act took place? Answer. That is a good question but I think that things are a little different in this case because there was never a risk. Question Ms. huck essentially you're saying that when it comes to the second element of the actus reus, there has to be causation between the dishonest act and the deprivation or risk of deprivation. In the example of the car salesman, you say, yes, there was a dishonest act, but there is no causation because it didn't influence some of us. In the case of your client, what I understand in your paragraph 43 is that you say, regardless of uh, the dishonest act, it had no influence on the outcome. Answer. I say two things,
1: Justice Coté. If we look at the material element of the fraud, yes, we said it was important to recognize that there is a, a lie, but then If we follow logically, we must ask whether there is deprivation, and deprivation, the material component, it it decomposes into two elements. There is harm or risk of harm, which we can summarize as a devalorization of assets, and then there is the legal issue. But logically, in the reflection that I'm suggesting you should do, the first The question that you should ask yourselves is whether there is deprivation. There is a dishonest act. That is not at issue here. But then we need to ask whether there is deprivation. And if it's only when we determine that there is deprivation that we need to ask whether there is causality that links both of them because, because the causality is theoretical at this point. Is there a risk of deprivation? Yes, there is a risk of harm because deprivation includes both harm and the risk of harm and what i am saying here is that if we follow this logic and we break it down there is a dishonest act first of all there is no deprivation due to the verdict of permanent disability which was not contested at the tr- at the trial level and then subsidiary there is no cause co- Caus- causality, because there is there is a risk of influence, and a risk of influence is not the proof of uh, influence beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, and what here, what we have is admission by the part of uh, the uh, appellant that the verdict was the same in the la- could have been the same within the la- in the absence of falsehood. On your second point. A Justice Cournoyer, does does he address uh, uh, one paragraph 150 uh, in his reasons? Since you are basing your your point on Ricebury, he said, as Ricebury says, in the presence of causality, the absence of the risk of, of harm. Because of the potential threat of the economic assets of the SQ, and not because the physician arbiter based himself on, on information communicated by the appellant, I believe yes. In the first sentence, he based on his, our interpretation of Ricebury and the second sentence, which talks about the risk of harm he addresses the notion of deprivation first of all the potential uh, threat was not part of the ri- risk of harm it, it is a threat we are distancing himself for a more from a more and more theoretical risk but here there is no potential threat unless I guess as I said the um, appellant is uh, uh, declared a permit to have a permanent disability and that was not challenged at the trial court but here the only way for the appellant to get a- around this uh, uh, conclusion which I think is is very r- robust because he said there is no deprivation because the Court of Quebec paid paid the money that they had to pay in the first sentence you Use, which you say is uh, erroneous. It is a a quote from Ricebury, and your position is your position that Ricebury is uh, is erroneous. No, not at all. What what Justice Kuldawiye draws from paragraph one fifty is the end of paragraph twenty four, which I read to you, but he completely il- ignores the first part of the paragraph, which says. So, and that means that what follows does not apply to deceit or falsehood, but here it is very clear that the dishonest act which was recognized by the trial court is a, is a falsehood. It is covering up important facts. So this is not the same thing as Ricebury, it's, it, it follows that when the act is, that is deemed fraudulent does not is not deceit or falsehood well then the demonstration of the existence of, of causation between the dishonest act and deprivation does not necessarily depend on the evidence that the victim Base themselves on the fraudulent act and what the Supreme Court does in Ricebury, I am not questioning. I am saying that this paragraph 24, at the start, the uh, Supreme Court opened a parenthesis saying what follows is for acts that do not involve deceit or falsehood. How can there be a causation between a lie and deprivation If someone does not rely on the lie that was given, Ms. Gagnon-Roch, do you think the Crown had the burden of demonstrating that the report by the physician arbitrator should have been different if there had not been a dishonest act? Did the Crown have that responsibility? You said earlier that the status of permanent disability was not challenged by the Crown, so if I push that further should the Crown have demonstrated that the that had it not been for that dishonest act the report would have been different and the status would not have been recognized answer I believe yes but I will explain my answer and this is what led the Court of Appeal and the appellant to develop the theory on the fact that that as soon as the lie was given, there was deprivation. There are two unavoidable issues, the fact that they didn't contest the medical diagnosis and the verdict given by the physician arbiter, because on the one hand, if you recognize that it was possible that the verdict would have been the same, even without the lies uh, that would challenge uh, Smithers because we know that it's possible that if there had been no influence they well, they should have done, they should have come to the exact same conclusion. I don't know if you uh, recall the Mibin ruling. In M- Mibin, uh, there are two sides. There's the, the victim, but we're not able to determine whether at the time that they intervened the victim had already been deceased so they were acquitted because they weren't able to determine beyond a reasonable doubt that had it not been for these actions the victim would have died anyway this is the same thing here so if we look at the same issue we come to the conclusion that um, had even if the lie had not been given the verdict might have been the same so we are not able to establish causation between the lie and the verdict and beyond a reasonable doubt that is one of the issues that uh, the other issue is that uh, if we think that we need to assess the deprivation at at the moment where the, um, the victim engaged in some conduct like the uh, ruling by the B.C. Court of Appeal, at that time, we would see that the verdict, in in that it is when it is uncontested, is rec- it's recognized, but it has always existed. So the uh, the precondition, he did not become. A, he did not just become unfit for work on the day of the report he was already uh... The can the, the prior conditions the existence of this uh, disability was present when the doct- when, when the uh... appellant lied regardless of the way he proceeded to uh... obtain the recognition of his right he had He was entitled to his permanent disability benefits, so at that time the SQ cannot be defrauded of any value or money because all that it is doing is following up on the legal obligation that it has to pay salary to… There were two problems. When they decided not to contest the medical, but particularly the verdict of ina- interpretation is being interrupted, while the sound te- is, is 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 resolved. Uh, les amené à dès le mensonge proféré, il y avait un risque de préjudice
0: parce que il y aurait pu avoir une, ces mensonges-là auraient pu avoir une influence. Mais ça, d'une part, à mon avis, ce pas une privation, c'est l'énoncé d'un lien causal, c'est-à-dire qu'il y a un risque que le mensonge produise un effet. C'est même pas un lien causal qui est hors de tout doute raisonnable. Euh, mais cette <coughs> interprétation-là du droit, euh, c'est
1: un changement, à mon avis, là, sous le couvert, en fait, de... de, de De la prétention qu'on se conforme au droit applicable it would be a major change in law and it's a change that would risk triggering serious consequences question is this not a minimization of the role of the physician arbiter if we says that there's Nothing uh, that's tied to his report at the end of the day because the entire uh, Context is already established so one might ask why the The report from the physician arbiter was sought the report was final and it is it is not appealable and so it's there can it's there's a contestation of the fact that the SQ did not Contest the report, but where is the SQ going in all of this? Well, I think SQ. Um, I think that it's it's able to. There's a contestation is possible if there are new facts to add to the case. And uh, SQ already knew that there were uh, some facts available that might call into question the assessment, but the SQ was bound b- by the fact that there were no new facts. But that binds suretitude du Québec. I think that it would have been still possible to question the medical diagnosis and the, the verdict of, of unfitness for work but it chose not to do so and that had a major influence on the procedures that followed. And that's what led the uh, respondent and the majority of the court to transform the element of, of deprivation but that means that a lie becomes a fraud and it subsumes, if you will, uh, the element of deprivation from from the lie because there's always a period of vulnerability in the interlocutor and at that so, it's not necessary to to prove deprivation because it's always possible in theory that the person who heard the lie would follow up on it. In fact, question, uh, in fact, that would eliminate the attempted fraud because you, fraud would always occur, yes, but but it means that that there's this expansion and it uh, eliminates the offense of attempted fraud for all intents and purposes, because it would no longer exist. Question, and your colleagues will tell us that Schrang essentially is incompatible with Holland, with all of this uh, movement in the in the case law, which enshrines the risk, there's the case from the Court of Appeal, the BC Court of Appeal that requires the transfer of a good and that comes back to a real deprivation and the risk is eliminated there answer with um, respect for my colleagues, I, I really disagree. In fact, if you look at the case law from your court in the last 30 years, uh, and I demonstrated that in, in our brief, in all cases, whether they were Holland, Terou, Ryesbury, which is difficult to reconcile because it's not talking about a lie, but if we look at La Roche from, the, uh, from our court of appeal on which the judges are basing themselves, in all cases, the victim was involved in the conduct. It transferred, they transferred a good in the Theroux ruling, for example, where Mr. Theroux made uh, comments that were, uh, that were untrue about the existence, I believe, of a a guarantee plan. The victims were people who acquired this guarantee and they were not um, all those people, not everyone who heard uh, Mr. Theroux's lie. And if we look at Holland and there is a transaction in, in La Roche, there is an example of a vehicle purchase not all people that all of the people that Mr. Laroche addressed bought the car. You you see where where he's coming from. So those people who purchased a car, they were defrauded of money, and some people, their vehicle was seized as uh, subsequently, and they uh, experienced a, a harm or a loss. People who learned that their vehicle was susceptible of being seized but who did not face a seizure, they experienced a risk of harm. And they lived with a Damocles sword above their heads saying that, well, my my car is worth a certain amount of money, but because it is at risk of being seized at any time, I can't get rid of it. I, I'm li- leaving, living with the fear of, of losing it at any time, and that is a risk of harm. There you can talk truly about a... a, a a devaluing of an asset of people who purchased a vehicle, but how can we talk about a, a devalorization of an asset from someone who simply heard a, a, a lie and then didn't follow up on it? That's what the Court of Appeal did. What the Court of Appeal did, it said that when we hear a lie, it devalues our assets because who knows what will happen following the lie. That's causing major issues because, and, and I'll wrap up with this, imagine And I did this in my brief. Imagine that the appellant made the same lie, gave the same lies, but the uh, physician arbiter decided, no, finally Mr. Landry is fit for returning to work. He's, and he returns, he returned to work as his, in his position as, as a, with the SQ. Well, in that case, um, would there still have, the, according to this, the Court of Appeal, there still would have been fraud, and I think that that is not logical. So so that brings us to the new theory of fraud that is drafted by the Supreme uh, by the Court of Appeal in this ruling, and I hope that, um, I think that it's ill-founded. Thank you. Mr. Cardinal Justices, good morning Patrick Cardinal. I will address you mainly on the substance of the debate namely the commission of the offense of fraud and my the risk of harm my colleague uh, mr. Abron will uh, focus on why there cannot be an acquittal and there will be a, a number of comments to address the court about whether, about whether or not they should reject the appeal or welcome the appeal or, or receive the appeal so I will allow you a bit of time uh, I will leave some time from to mr. Abron I think that it is a file that given the risk of harm the notion of the risk of prom and the link of the causality mean that we need to focus on the facts of the file. The examples that were given by my colleague about the sale of a vehicle and everything I think that they try to establish a causal link for everything. Is there, a yes or no, a, a causal link? Is there a link between the dishonest act, the fraudulent act, whether it's a lie, a falsehood or other fraudulent means, and the risk of harm? How is it established in this case? I think that we deserve to look at a, a, all of the facts that exist in this file on the uh, lies and in 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 other fraudulent means which are uh, the misrepresentations of important facts by Mr Landry question do you ag- agree with your colleague's approach that we need to look at the a causal link or not answer what we say is that we need to look at the causal link what i'm saying is that the causal link is is is, is unquestionable why because dr leblanc testified for the prosecution and in his testimony you see it tab 10 at an, in a number of respects it was he it was mentioned and and reiterated that there was an importance of the that, that the um, comments were important and they were they came in the any in the, uh in his meeting of 22 may 2014 dr leblanc is, is that not what he's used to doing is he said that he was the one who was directing the interview, he decided to ask which questions were asked and he was the one who decided which elements were relevant to look at and drew his conclusion. Answer: Yes, but Mr. Laundry was the one which information he would answer in his questions to the doctor. Question, and the uh, prosecution uh demonstrated that there was no dishonest act and doctor Le- had there been no dishonest act dr. Leblanc would have come to a different conclusion in his report uh, is that is that the pr- evidence that was given answer obviously no in the, in the theory the the prosecution decided to not pursue that evidence and if it had done so there would have been a, an expert debate on in the trial and the prosecution decided that the uh, that the the conclusion would have been that the appellant was was fit to return to work in this case uh there was a risk of uh real harm and um and there is a risk of, of harm the risk of president it stems from a causal link between the lies and what that the impact that had on sq which is the risk of having to pay uh, the this person his his uh benefits the claim by the prosecutor is that we do not have to present evidence that that are you do you agree inaudible for the interpreter no if the if the accused did not have that burden to show that the result would not have been the same had it not been for the for the lies, I believe that on this file there was a risk of of uh, There was also, look. If we look at the Ricebury effect, can we require that there be more evidence uh, in the in the horse race? We can't show that we could simply redo the exercise and prove that the result would have been different. There is a certain analogy to be made with the result of the medical assessment. The distinction is that you could imagine a case in which the medical assessment might have resulted in this debate but we can't determine whether there would have been a different result had there not been these lies question mr. Cardinal your colleague has invited us to read ricebury differently she puts in opposition the paragraph cited by Justice Cornwallet about the existence of a causal link on which it's in section 20 paragraph 26 of ricebury yes and her reading of paragraph 24 which according to your colleague, presumes that the analysis would be done differently uh, for lies rather than any other dishonest act. What did you have to say to that? Answer. Two things. First of all, I think that in this case uh, we are facing both uh, lies and misrepresentation uh, and perhaps other fraudulent means. Second thing is that I think that the comment by the court in paragraph 24 of Ricebury is very uh, focused on the facts of Ricebury. Evidently in Ricebury there are no lies, there is only a fraudulent means. Uh, is there reason to differentiate between the effect of lies, uh, falsehoods, or other fraudulent means? I think that in all these cases, the importance is to focus on the causal link and the proof that was given. Judge Cromwell, Justice Cromwell said, does not depend necessarily on the proof that the victim based themselves on the fraudulent act. Uh, what did he mean there? Your colleague seems to say that there is an a- analysis based on the nature of the fraudulent actor act in question answer it comes out of Vizina and Cote and Ricebury and in this file uh, we are facing some somewhat of the same situation where the victim itself namely the SQ was not uh, influenced by the lies or other fraudulent means of the appellant because it was not part of the medical assessment it simply had to pay uh, his salary in function of the conclusions by Dr. Leblanc. Question there were eight points that Dr. Leblanc assessed exactly and then it well I think there are nuances to be made about this because what we're asking of Dr. Leblanc is to weigh in on the questions concerning fitness for work and essentially his ability to return to work as a police officer, yes, as a police officer. You will recall that factually, Dr. Leblanc also weighed in within his, within his report on on uh, his ability to to carry out uh, administrative tasks. So there was that aspect that he assessed as well, which is considered by Dr. Leblanc. To come back to your question, Judge Kazur, Justice Kazerer, rather, in Ricebury, in paragraph 24, the demonstration of the existence of a link does not necessarily depend on the evidence that the victim was founded them based themselves on the fraudulent act. We we are in this type of situation, in Ricebury, the uh, betters did not necessarily bear, bet based on the dishonest act by Mr. Ricebury. The SQ is not necessarily influenced by the uh, lies of the appellant, Dr. Leblanc is, and that comes back to Vizina and Cote, which tells us on page 19 that the victim, him or herself, does not have to be misled. They must be harmed. But I think that it's a concept that applies very well to the case before us because the victim uh, was not misled. It was the decision maker who binds the victim who was misled. The victim was not damaged. If we look at the position of your approach and we adopt the position of the majority of the Court of Appeal, what would be the distinction from now on between fraud and attempted fraud? Answer. One of the positions of Judge Justice Cottenham rests on the fact that she does not agree with the majority because adopting that position would come back to eliminating the offense of attempted fraud. I think that there would be a attempted fraud once at when at the time of the, the dishonest act is committed, there it is there is to simply no possibility of deprivation. There is an example in paragraph 86 of the the respondent's uh, brief where, for example, an individual commits theft, steals a checkbook uh, or cashes a fraudulent check. um, If the bank or the victim detects the, uh, the theft of the checkbook in advance, and block the account or deactivate it, when the Dishonest Act is committed uh, there is no possibility of deprivation, but it is attempted fraud. And furthermore, Justice Cournoyer made reference to that possibility. It's in paragraph 172 of the statement by the Court of Appeal uh, in the footnote question. But isn't that the case here? Here the SQ knew, they knew the situation. Furthermore, that is why they decided to proceed in such a way to to see what uh, he said because the SQ knew that he they knew the situation. They knew that he was traveling. They knew that he was going to work at a travel agency. So that was somewhat the case. Why how is it that you are claiming that it's fraud? Answer. Well, first of all, I don't think that we can affirm that the SQ knew about his activities. What comes out of Mr. Lucier's testimony, and it's on page 154 of his testimony of August 9, 2018, is that SQ had doubts about his activities. And if we look at the facts, it comes out of the testimony by Mr. Lucier, who, which was part of the uh, appellant's file, which, and there's, a, there's a, a travel photo from 2011, and there were two phone calls that show that he what, repre- was representing himself as the owner and that he was traveling. The, bur- the bulk of the evidence that was presented during the trial uh, stem from the, uh, the searches. The searches came six months after the evaluation in November 2014. So, so at the SQ didn't have a, a real picture of the situation. It had doubts and that's why it's claimed that there was an error. Uh, by the judge when she said that there was a, a knowledge of the strategy uh, and, a, and a lack of deprivation because there was no knowledge but there were doubts and there's a distinction between the knowledge and doubt and what co- that's what comes out of uh, that in in tab 13 of, of the condensed record and if we look at that perhaps the situation would have been different if SDSQ had been present at the medical assessment but that was not the case. The medical assessment occurred between the appellant and the physician-arbiter question but the the doctor from the SQ had done his assessment uh, answer. He had done it in in July uh, 2014. Question. And what should we do with your, the argument presented by your colleague to say that it's not what he did during the, the meeting said during the meeting of May 22, 2014 that made him in inadmissible? He was already admissible for long t- for a long time, or, or rather, he he already in, unfit for work. Answer: I think that uh, why would he have met? Why would the doctor have met with the ap- with the appellant if if the uh, incapacity was already final why if he was already unfit for work and the causal link did not exist why did the doctor that why would he have hidden his his daily activities for the previous 13 months why did the appellant lie about the nature of his activities if he didn't think that it might have a link to the result of his evaluation if he was already unfit for work which we don't know because what determines full uh, total and uh, permanent incapacitation is the finality of the report of uh, the sec- 22nd of May. And perhaps to uh, complete your your thoughts on the on the attempted fraud, Madame Lacoté, I would quote paragraph 172. On paragraph 172 of the statement by the Court of Appeal of Quebec, uh, Justice Courtenoye mentions
0: This is in discussing the impossible offence, and it says, even if you accept the proposal that the appellant was already unfit for work, in that case there would be no attempted fraud. And if you look at the footnote, it says... So, it is, remains possible that there could have been attempted fraud if, at the time of the Dishonest Act, the impossibility of the deprivation is established. Question, of course, but perhaps to explain the confusion of people who see the attempt evaporate, when we enlarged deprivation to risk of deprivation, de facto we reduced the scope of application of attempted attempted fraud so it's not that attempt the attempt doesn't exist it's just that its scope of application is reduced answer yes and i think that stems from holland and what followed but it's also from a choice of the prosecution and it's a, distinguished from attempted theft there's an attempt of theft if the person doesn't succeed to commit the theft. When it comes to fraud a choice was made following Holland and it was followed up until recently in Ricebury in 2015. Fraud is uh, criminalized and in the concept, very concept of fraud, the risk is uh, prohibited and the goal there is to sanction the dishonest act that means that the victim could, through their own actions, devalue their interests. And so in Slatic, the court mentions exactly this. Question. Yes, Slatic, uh, I understand. That is the justification for the risk. Now, time is flying. I'd like to get your answer to my colleague on the Schlang decision. Your friend put forward and others agree with her that it would be best to have a middle ground solution rather than eliminating the risk and adding a layer saying you need a transfer From the victim of something that has a value of a good. What do you have to say to that answer? I would say two things. First of all, the first point on the ground of appeal, the dishonest act led to the effect. If there must be a transfer of a good, then over the period of time, May twenty fourteen to November, the Sortie du Québec did pay Monsieur Landry's salary, which is why we say that the the harm is forty-two thousand dollars. So if we apply the test according to the appellant, then what I submit is that we must conclude that there is fraud here. Now is Schreng justified? I think as Justice Cournoyer said, if we apply the principles that stem from Holland then Schreng goes in a different direction and having, insisting on a transfer of assets as uh, it says in Schreng, means that you are insisting on evidence of a real harm Question: So even if we accept Schrank, it doesn't help the appellant. You argue the same thing as uh, Justice Cournoyer saying Schrank is incompatible with Holland, etc. Answer: Yes. And to illustrate the the lack of compatibility, compatibility compatibility with string. If you look at paragraph 42, you'll see that if there's, there's an argument that doesn't make sense. The victim was deprived, whether it was for a long period of time or a short period of time. Question. You say that uh, the appellant received $42,000 between May and October correct yes, and the and dr Leblanc's report was uh, presented in June correct yes then why did you continue to pay after the report answer because uh, the Sq wasn't aware of the evidence it was uh, following the suspension of mr. Landry question and when uh, the report was presented. You said somebody at the SQ analyzed the report? Answer. Yes, I believe it was uh, Mr. Lucier who was asked to investigate starting on June 18th and his report only came out in July. The report was uh, penned by Dr. Tremblay, it was never put into evidence at trial and what uh, r- comes out of Mr. Lucy's evidence is that on July 24th, the Professional Standards Board was asked to investigate and their investigation started on July 24th and it ended with the, the seizures in November. So the fact that payments stopped in November is because of the investigation not because Dr. Leblanc's report was challenged. Answer: In fact there was never any challenge of the report because the SQ, what we learned from Mr. Lucier's testimony, is that the work contract was applied and then at tab 13 or 12 you'll see the decision was final and bound the parties. So it's a specific, uh, there are specific circumstances. We have to look at the specific facts of this case and look given all of those facts and especially Dr. Leblanc's testimony, is there a causal link between the dishonest act and the deprivation? For the reasons that were mentioned and also The passages in our tab 10. The importance given, uh, the weight given to what uh, the patient says during an interview and in page 22 of our condensed book there's a reference uh, here Dr. Leblanc says uh, his uh, state over the last few months is relevant to see the evolution of the case and then he will mention, he mentions you have to understand the way the individual works and you have to therefore ask questions. The individual has to describe in his or her own words what he or she can do or what he or she has trouble doing. Now obviously there are other elements that can play a role in this type of assessment but it doesn't change the facts and the test is in uh, Maine, and I uh, cite uh, Justice Gournoyer is the dishonest act meaningful or material question? I understand, uh, Mr. Cardinal, all of these issues are important when you're doing an assessment, but in this case, through his statements and through what he chose to hide, uh, the appellant wanted to Show that he was not fit for work. nobody ever proved that the conclusion the the doctor's conclusion was wrong. Nobody proved that after the lies or the the falsehoods told by the appellant, that the final assessment was wrong. so. Is it true that he was not unfit for work forever? That evidence was not adduced. answer. That's true. But the opposite wasn't proven either. And what I would say is uh, related to what the dissenting uh, justice said. Justice Cotnam founded her conclusion of the absence of deprivation on a couple of things. On the fact that there is no risk of prejudice because the appellant was always uh, unfit and there was no risk, no possibility that Dr. Leblanc would conclude otherwise. That evidence was never presented at trial. Nobody proved that without the lies Mr. Landry would have been considered fit for work. So, no matter what was said to Dr. Leblanc, would the result have been different? And as uh, it says in uh, paragraph 171 of the decision, this is irrelevant to determining the Appellant's uh, culpability. Unless the court has any other questions, uh, I will let my friend take over. I think you can note the fact that you've given up on the acquittal but that leaves us with uh, the issue and your friend gave us an answer. If, do I understand from your position that Justice Cottenham should have dismissed the appeal and substituted a verdict of attempted fraud. If and this is hypothetical, if we were to confirm Justice Cottenham's position, then what should our court say? Answer, that's exactly what I wanted to discuss because despite my friend's admission, uh, here's the situation. The reason why we say Justice Cottenham made an error is that the only power to do this is in six. 863 which leads us to 6861 BI. Under that scheme the only way you can substitute a court of appeal verdict is by dismissing the appeal. This is not in my condensed book but in 1989 and I'll give you the reference RV Povo 1982 RCS3 this court at page 19 said the following. The problem with this way of doing things is that the court does not have the power to substitute the verdict unless it dismisses an appeal under 686131BI. So in this context our position if ever you find in favor of the appellant is that there could not be that the appeal could not be allowed that's why the acquittal is an impossibility here because you would have to unanimously dismiss the appeal and you would have to substitute the verdict for attempted fraud This also stems from the Bignaris decision of this court where, once again, it says the way of proceeding when there's a substitution of a verdict is to dismiss the appeal and then substitute the verdict. Question. Your friend has given up her first conclusion and is now relying on her subsidiary arguments. Answer. Well. We look at 695 of the Criminal Code, which under WR of 1992, the court needs to put itself in the shoes of the Court of Appeal. Now what's the difference? When the appeal is dismissed, the law does not allow the possibility for the court to acquit somebody, and therefore under 6. 95, when it substitutes itself for the Court of Appeal, cannot acquit the appellant because that power simply doesn't exist in the context of substituting a verdict. And the case of substituting verdicts is special. The legislator removes the power of substituting verdicts under 686 0.8. The only thing that can be done is to Hand down a sentence or to send it back to trial for the correct sentence to be handed down. So I won't talk at length about this if you have no questions. Our position is that given the absence of the statutory power to substitute this with an acquittal now in this case it would be possible but i understand that my friend already gave up on that so if question unless i'm mistaken you haven't gone all the way to the end of this argument if hypothetically we agreed with the subsidiary argument of the appellant what would the court the court's order be would it be what justice Cottenham should have done so dismiss the appeal and substitute or allow the appeal in part and then substitute answer it would be uh, dismissing the appeal and substituting the verdict because the appellant's appeal is founded on an allowed appeal that contains an error so in that context dismissing the appeal and a new verdict substitution would be the way to go. And I believe, based on my reading in preparation, that it would be a good thing if it's clearly explained in the court's decision. In my research I uh, found certain cases where there was an error that didn't have a real uh, effect where the Court of Appeal substituted a verdict even though they don't have uh, power, the power to do so. Question: This has to do with the right of appeal? It did not affect the right of appeal. I have another question. If uh, we uh, follow the subsidiary arguments of your friend, who says we should maintain Justice Cottonham's uh, sentence, or send this back to trial, what is your position on that answer? we believe it should be sent back to trial for two reasons. First of all, because stays were not available at that time and so they were not discussed by the parties. We believe it would be beneficial for there to be a full debate on that issue and secondly, when there's a decision taken when it comes to the sentence because there was no argument of real harm but only risk of harm, the only difference is the crime of attempted fraud or fraud. But the rest of the decision of the trial judge remains valid. Justice Cottenham l- would have reviewed the entire trial decision and therefore we think it would be beneficial to send this back to trial. Your time is, is up. Thank you very much. Thank you. Reply.
1: It's more of a comment. I will try to not repeat myself. On one hand, I noted with a great deal of satisfaction the comment by my colleague, on the attempt when he he mentioned that the said that there's an impossibility that there was deprivation. That's exactly the situation in which we find ourselves where the appellant is inapt for work at the time where he lies. He has an entitlement which will be recognized uh, at a later date but it exists already that that is our case It is a case of of attempted fraud the case that is before us a second comment on the testimony by dr. Leblanc about the importance of comments that the appellant made because obviously I have read the file and what he said was well everything is important including the comments by the appellant but what you must not lose from sight in all of this and I I think we are justified to base ourselves on the comments that the uh, prosecutor made and about the, th- the theory that the prosecution put forth in the court. That, namely that even if Dr. LeBlanc mentioned that everything is por- important it's possible that even if Mr. Landry had been honest even if there had not been, even if he had not lied on which the def, defence is based, he has the right. There was a failure in the testimony by Dr. Leblanc on the matter and he's saying yes, it is, he said it was important but we're telling you that even if it hadn't occurred the, the verdict would have been unchanged. So, I am focused on that comment uh, to tell you that the causal link has not been demonstrated beyond a reasonable doubt. What we demonstrated, at best, is a possibility of a causal link, but that is not sufficient in criminal law. Question, do you have a comment to respond to Mr. Cardinal? He made another, a different reading of Ricebury than you did. In the infamous uh, paragraphs 24 and 26, he highlighted, among others, the presence of uh, misrepresentations on the file. He doesn't see any issue. And in any case, if I correctly understood, he sees, he thinks that you're reading paragraph 24 too broadly. Answer, obviously we have a very different reading of the paragraph well there is paragraph 23 and paragraph 24 I didn't refer to paragraph 23 where we talk about uh, uh, misrepresentation or in the fact of the facts I don't I don't have my brief with me for my reply but I cite a a, in a a footnote an extract of the doctrine that preceded Ricebury and it talks about the importance of adapting the interpretation of the causal link to between the dishonest act that is alleged and for me there is no difference between misrepresentation of important facts and lie both uh, we can say that there was a causal link therefore it, it can cause a deprivation and it must ha- and to do so it must have produced an effect among the person who hears the uh, like uh, professor's Gagnier and Raville answer yes exactly you read it the the footnote so I understand the Ricebury ruling and as you say I, I'm not questioning the fact that that it is a quite apropos for other fraudulent means but since the there is there will be situations where there is no incidence that was demonstrated and and it's not the Supreme Court that created in Ricebury that state of law it existed before what it recognized in Ricebury is that it already existed and you need to do an a, a, a an attentive reading of that and that's true for all other fraudulent means but for uh falsehood Deceit falsehood or other fraudulent means uh, the victim must always have based themselves on those elements without there is no Cause of causal relationship. It's impossible to establish it. Thank you Thank you. Uh, the court will now take its morning break and I would ask uh, the counsel to remain on site
0: Thank you. Please be seated. The court would like to thank counsel for their thoughtful arguments and we are ready to hand down our decision. This is an appeal as of right from a judgment that was a subject of dissent on a question of law. In this case, the majority of the Quebec Court of Appeal upheld the fraud conviction and the dissenting judge would have substituted a verdict of attempted fraud for that verdict. There is therefore a disagreement which affects the result within the meaning of Damico. The majority of the court is of the view that the appeal should be dismissed substantially for the reasons of the majority of the Court of Appeal. Justice Coté, for her part, would have allowed the appeal, in part, to substitute an attempted fraud conviction for the fraud conviction, substantially for the reasons of Justice Cottenham, and would have remitted the matter to the trial court. For sentencing. Therefore the appeal is dismissed. Thank you. The court is adjourned until tomorrow morning at 930.